You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Hey, just a quick heads up. Some of the characters in this story like to use um, colorful language. It might not be appropriate for all ears. So I've always been more than a little obsessed with the ghost town of Teller City. It was settled in 1879, and it was the first real town in my home valley of North Park, Colorado. I loved reading about it in this old leather-bound book in the local library. It was called North Park. It was written by Hazel Grisham, this adorable little old lady that as a kid, I'd see her on the street and I would think, she's famous because she had written our definitive history. In it, she told stories about the wild characters who came to tell her, hoping to get rich quick, digging up silver ore. Like this one bloody tale about some of Teller's founders who decided they wanted to oust the county's sheriff. But the way Hazel tells it, Sheriff Bauer got to them first. Boyer and Redmond shot Weber and Dean from ambush, killing them instantly. Barney Day, an old Indian fighter, saw the shooting and rushed towards Sheriff Boyer in an attempt to prevent further bloodshed. But the sheriff fired at him, point blank. J.G. Mills, upon seeing Day shot down, rushed to him to either knife him or shoot him at close quarters. Day, lying mortally wounded, raised himself on one elbow and shot and killed Mills instantly. The Grand Lake Massacre. Hazel might have been a sweet little old lady, but she knew how to tell a heart-pounding story. So yeah, Teller City was a wild and crazy place. 1,300 people lived there at its height. It had a grand hotel, a barber shop, a newspaper, 27 saloons, 27! But then, after only eight years, Teller City just went kaput. And so what I'm wondering is, If I can understand why Teller died, could I understand why its nearest descendant, Walden, the town where I grew up, is dying too? So today, in episode two of our ghost towning series, we'll go looking for ghosts and see what they have to say. 
From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. My first step to figuring out why towns like mine are dying is to track down Hazel's grandson, Rick Cornelson. He agrees to meet me and my dad, Jay, at the North Park Pioneer Museum. Rick is a big guy with a salt and pepper mustache, and today he's wearing a red Trump 2020 cap. Rick helps run the museum, which I got to plug. It's one of the best museums anywhere, chock full of Wild West stuff. But today he's taking us on a tour of Teller City. All right, well, um, shall we head off to go see the Teller City? Sure. Okay. All right. We get in our cars and start across the valley. To get to the ghost town, you have to drive to the far south end of North Park and then head up into the mountains on dirt roads that get narrower and narrower and narrower. The whole time I'm thinking, and why exactly was this a good place to plant a town? Finally, after crossing a rickety bridge, we see a rough-looking cabin and a dirt parking lot next to it. A buck and rail fence encircles it and part of the hillside too. I figured this must be the town and pull in. It's hard to tell what we're looking at, so I pull out Rick's grandma's book. We flip to page 44, where she's drawn a map of the town. My dad tries to get oriented. Uh, mm-hmm. well, wait a minute now. This is east. That's going to be... Going through there. Ro- that's the road to Rand. Okay. So There's not much left of the town to orient ourselves by. Just the falling down foundations of cabins here and there. On the north side here. That's where we are? Yeah, we're over on the north side. So Minkowski and the hotel. Okay. So the hotel is going to be... Um, Should just be right here somewhere. Uh, yeah, they've got them. They've got a little plaque. Oh, they do? Okay. We start walking up C Street. Rick says most of the town was carted off long ago. People came up and started tearing them down, taking logs to build their houses elsewhere. They were already cut and planed. And and a lot of people came up here and took the good logs and made fireplace mantles out of them. As we walk, we try to imagine 1,300 people living here. That's like twice as many people as live in Walden now. The town is nestled in a hollow, surrounded by mountains. Back then, the Ute and Arapaho tribes still spent summers hunting in this valley. The imposing never-summer range looms above the town. Hazel's book says in the winter, the mailman delivered the mail on snowshoes over a pass high above timberline. It's because people were determined to have all the makings of a real town, kind of like Pinocchio, wanting to be a real boy. Yeah, they had a newspaper, they had a barbershop, they had the whole nine yards. They had a school, they had two school teachers. I mean, this town wasn't here that long. No, but what, eight years? But they had a lot of silver, a lot of different silver. Just trying to get it out of here was their problem. That's why it busted? And you can imagine bringing a stage in here every day from Laramie. Fort Collins. Yeah, and getting Grand over Lake. big mountains in it, no, mat- no matter which direction you go. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get here with the car. <laughs> <laughs> Even to this day. 
we come to a placard that the Forest Service posted next to a sprawling ruin of logs. There's an old photograph of a two-story building before people carted it off piece by piece. Oh, here's the hotel. Okay. Welcome to the very heart of town, C Street. The foundation before you is all that remains of what was the grandest structure in Teller City, the Yates House Hotel, boasting two stories and as many as 40 rooms. Geez. It was both large and elegant. Persian rugs and fine European paintings decorated the lobby. If you listen closely, you might still hear faint echoes from the grand piano that graced the parlor. <laughs> Teller City's boom was dizzying. Buildings and rooms sprang up overnight. There's even a story of a Yates house room built right around a newly arrived guest. <laughs> oh, wow. My dad is skeptical about hearing echoes of piano music, but for me, the ghosts of this place, they do feel close by. Why are people so fascinated by ghost towns anyway? I mean, like, there's something about them. I guess it's just the thought that people actually lived here, made a, made a home. It feels like there is actual ghosts. You could feel, you sort oh, yeah. of feel them can, here. You can. You, it's, I mean, you have to have that belief. What stays after the town dies seems to be the energy of all that activity. Over 40 mines sprang up here, silver as close to the surface as four feet down. But Rick says nobody ever got rich here. He says Teller's bust hit out of nowhere when the Cripple Creek gold rush started near Denver. The cabins that were still here still had their kitchens and stuff still had the plates on the tables and food on the plates. They, they just left up and, and left. left. They just walked away. Yep. Abandoned it. Yeah. And a lot of them just dropped over into the valley and started and ranching. ranching. So a lot of the miners, those families that were miners, they became some of ranchers. our, some of our some homesteading of ran ranchers. Yep. Yeah. Rick says miners turned into cowboys for a very simple reason. You could see your prophet walking around out there in the field. Right, you know? right, right. And like say this, nobody became rich up here. No, or like logging, same thing. You know, you yep. can, you can have a little clearer vision. The mining thing, it's like it's like crazy. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna get rich. Maybe, yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> After Teller City busted, people wanted a nice, reliable, evergreen economy. Raising cattle seemed like a safer bet than mining silver. And Teller isn't the only ghost town in the valley that was abandoned for agriculture. On the other end of the valley, the town of Pearl boomed for copper. 800 people at its height. That uh, chimney that's still standing out there, that was their, uh, where they were going to process their copper. It ran one day. It made one billet of copper. I have it at the museum. Do you? Yep. Well, I got to go in there. Do Same you? thing there. It just petered out. It just, the expense yeah. of shipping their product, they just couldn't do it. Yeah. Why didn't anybody try again once, you know, the trains came through and, the, you know, roads were built? And... Well, by then they were all out ranching. They, yeah. They'd yeah. given up on the mines. Even the mines here were 
corporations that went together to build the mines instead of just individual people. It was, yeah, yeah. It was big companies yeah. that merged together and to come up with the money to keep it, to do what they did. The whole mythology of the old scruffy miner wandering out of the mountains with his mule in his gold panning gear, his panniers bulging with gold nuggets. Yeah, that's all in our heads. Even back then, those guys were few and far between. Our history books fed us that refrain because it explains mass migration to the wild frontier. Our history books didn't want to dispel those myths our country was built on. There's a fear that without those myths, our country will fall apart. We need to believe that us Americans are self-made, independent, unstoppable. But the truth is, mostly big companies were the ones striking it rich. Teller's minds were no different. Two big companies monopolized the silver rush here, the Endemile and the Gaslight, and Rick says there was pressure on the little guys to give up their own mines and join forces with the big companies. That sounds kind of familiar, huh? I needed help interpreting all this ghost town history, putting it in perspective to understand our current times. So I tracked down an economics historian, Samuel Western. Nope, not a pseudonym. He's author of Pushed Off the Mountains, Sold Down the River. It's about the state of Wyoming's mini boom and busts. Ghost towns are almost exclusively connected to either railroads or commodity production. Especially after World War II, commodities just became increasingly consolidated and towns were left hanging high and dry. Western says the West is built on this idea of rugged individualism. But that never really worked out so well. I mean, we think of Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family moving west and, you know, Pa always wanting places that had less people, etc. But where did they settle? They settled by the shores of Silver Lake and he got a piece of land close to a town. And Pa worked for the railroad. So he could come back to his homestead and, and supply his family with the necessities because farming wasn't cutting it anymore. And I think that the idealism of the rugged individual, etc., soon collided with reality. And that the small farmer, the small miner, the small oil producer found themselves in pretty dire straits or they couldn't they couldn't hack the the competition or the boom and bust. But there is just something so alluring about that idea of the hardworking entrepreneur who can pull himself up by his bootstraps, the self-made man, free from the restraints of an over-regulated culture, outside the mothering clutches of refined society. And yes, I am intentionally using some gendered language here. The myth of the rugged individual is almost always a man. And the West was built around the mystique of such men. Like cowboying, hear that word boy in it? It satisfied that myth. So did lumberjacking. And in the 1940s, when the first energy boom arrived in North Park, so did oil field work. You remember my dad in the last episode. 
he quit his factory job and went back to roughnecking because he couldn't do what he called conventional personality work. That was true for a lot of his buddies, too. Back in the 70s, when the U.S. was looking for domestic sources of oil, a minor boom hit North Park. My dad made deep friendships on those crews. <laughs> Hi. Sit down. Yeah. How are you? Oh, not bad. How was your travels? Oh, long. Yeah? Recently, my dad got together for a reunion with two brothers, Robert and John, that he roughnecked with back then. Robert is passing through after retiring from captaining fishing boats in the far north. Another good career for a rugged individual. Now he's on his way home to Maine after a lifetime away. John and his wife Amy invite us all over for dinner at their amazing log house. It's tucked into an aspen grove in North Park's Medicine Bow Mountains. We pile up our plates with grilled salmon and coleslaw and quinoa and sit down to reminisce. These days, these guys go by John and Robert Simons. But when I was a kid, they had nicknames, Dog and Pigpen. This is my fish. Back then, they both had long, tangled hair and beards. John still does, a white, flowing beard down to his belt that he sometimes wears in two braids. Both of them still ride Harleys. A little scary to some people, but I thought of them as uncles. John had the biggest muscles that I had ever laid eyes on. As a kid, I always dreamed of painting him green like the Hulk and taking him to school for show and tell. He gave me and my brother rides up and down the stairs on his big steel-toed boots. Robert lived in a travel trailer in our yard for a while. One time, my mom was worried that he wouldn't wake up in time to get to work because he'd been out carousing late, so she gave me a glass of water and told me to pour it on his face. He came up sputtering and laughing. <laughs> Everything was an adventure to them then. John ran away from home when he was only 15. He made money the best way he could, and that usually meant hard labor. I was making $85 a week building a campground from some old German pastor. He was a hard ass. Then I wound up heading out here under duress. I went to work on rig, and I was making $7.50 an hour. It was two thirty an hour, and that was, uh, I think that was uh, minimum wage then. I remember guys back east working in the mills. Uh, these guys are paying $3.10 an hour. What the? But I came out here, went, went to work on rig. I was making $7.50 an hour, and by the end of the first year, I was making 10 Things were so much better out west that he called up his little brother and told him to come too. Robert was only 19 years old when he got on a train in Boston bound for Rollins, Wyoming. I took the train out there and he told me, he said, when you get off the train, he said, I'll wait, I'll be there. This is the days before cell phones. And if I'm not, I'll be at the Rifleman Bar on 4th Street. So you just walk up the 4th Street. And I stepped off the, I stepped off the train, it was October, and it was snowing and blowing, and I went, and there was no brother there. And I remember thinking, what the 
fuck did I get myself into? Walked up to the rifleman, and I went to go in, and I heard somebody call my name. I saw two greasy characters outside the door, <laughs> and I heard one of them call my name. I turned around, and that was one of the greasy characters. <laughs> Recognize him. We went in and had a few drinks, and I said, "Hey, John, why don't we, uh, why don't we go to your place and drop my bags off, and I'll then we can come back out and party." And he said, "Well, I've been meaning to tell you about that." I said, "Well, I got evicted." <laughs> so he said, "Oh, you can stay here." in the bar, uh -uh. and I did for three weeks. <laughs> Robert says it worked out okay because he soon got a job working morning towers. That's the oil field term for the night shift. But right off the bat, he realized roughnecking was exactly that, rough work. His boss, Floyd, called him the worm. And on day three on the job, we were tripping pipe. Uh -huh. And I didn't know what was going on. And it's midnight and, you know, lights and steel moving around. I don't know what I'm doing. And we were setting the Kelly back, and I had my finger on the edge of the rat hole. And Floyd lowered the Kelly down, and the bushing Fell smashed on top between me and the rat hole. And cut the tip of my finger off, and it hurt like hell, and it was bleeding like hell. And he said, come here, you fucking worm. And we went in the doghouse, and, and there, was a, there was a medicine cabinet, right, like this. Yeah. And there was, like, two Band-Aids and, and a Q-tip. You know, I mean, there's nothing in there, right? Right. And so he, uh, he gets some gauze, and he wraps it. Yeah. And he gets his tongue depressor, and he breaks that in half and puts that on there. And then he gets a roll of electrical tape and starts wrapping it as tight as he possibly could. And I went totally white. Oh, my God. I almost passed out. And bitched about the cost of electrical tape the whole time. Yeah, problem. Yeah, exactly. Robert was tough, but that kind of stuff got to him. He only lasted a few years in the oil fields before he moved on to fishing boats. But my dad and John stuck it out as long as the boom lasted. But that wasn't long. We'll hear more when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Well, oil field went to hell in the 80s. Little... Everybody did that. Yeah, there was yeah a, I tried cutting timber for a year and that didn't work out. I had a little oil field work after that. Then wound up went to school for motorcycle mechanics and wound up on the west coast for a while. And then <clears throat> my hand got injected with oil. Right. So I was out of work for two years. And then I called Jay and he said Exeter was hiring. So I came back. That was 91. 
In the 90s, a boom hit the front range of Colorado and more in Wyoming and Utah. After that, both my dad and John had plenty of work for years. Then shale oil technology came along and changed the oil field in a huge way. Now oil that was trapped in the rock could be fractured with intense earth shaking, what they called fracking, and then flushed out with chemicals. There was lots of that shale trapped oil under North Park, turns out. And so using this new technology, a boom hit here. John started his own service businesses and hired his brother and my dad. The gang was back together again. Things went really well for a while. Robert came to work and, and then Jay came then to work. Jay came to work and, and I had, left work. And I found my son's again. working for me. But yeah, I mean, for <clears throat> me, it was really good. So then what happened? Then these assholes from Oklahoma came out and bought the the oil fields or what? About the oil fields. Yeah. Going into bankruptcy, telling everybody what a great company they are, owing investors $3.5 billion, and their friggin' CEO gets a $18 million bonus for his expert guidance and leadership through the bankruptcy process. The new company insisted if John wanted to work, he had to be an employee and give up his business. So he did. Just like in Teller City days, the pressure was always on the little guy to consolidate into the big companies. Now both of his adult sons work for the company too. Then, a few months ago, the bust hit North Park. Big time. John recognizes it as a harbinger of things to come. Eventually, you know, they'll figure out how, to, how the solar powers works and they're going to figure out how things work and it might probably may probably be a good thing. They'll never completely get rid of oil fields. Yeah. Right now, other than maybe nuclear power, the cleanest power we've got is natural gas. It would be nice to see if everybody would get together and come to some compromise, come to put their energies into something productive instead of fighting each other all the time. I'm Barbara Voskis. I'm the environmental representative to the North Platte Basin Roundtable and have been since 2006. Barbara is someone who entirely agrees with John's idea of finding a compromise to the constant boom and bust of the energy industry. She's someone who moved to North Park a couple decades ago because of its wildness. In other words, not one of the rugged individuals trying to strike it rich. That's why I thought I'd talk to her, to see if she could help me see my town from outside that paradigm of boom and bust. Someone who recognized the value of this beautiful place, not as a resource, but just for itself. All throughout my career, I had to live in cities, but I'm not a city person. And uh, as I approached retirement, I started looking for a place that had more four-footed than two-footed critters. But soon after she arrived, the fracking boom hit. Barbara says the oil rigs of the 70s had pretty small footprints that weren't especially damaging to those four-legged critters and their habitats. But these oil shale wells have a totally different characteristic on the landscape. They are enormous multi-story pump jacks, huge tank farms. You can't miss them. She says North Park is known for its amazing night skies, but the flaring from these rigs has diminished that. 
like giant candles flickering and flaming many stories high in the sky. And trucks carting away fracking fluids have spilled a few times in North Park's pristine waterways. It was for those waters that my dad moved us to North Park. It's some of the best fly fishing anywhere. One of my concerns was really for the community in that um, they had enjoyed and have enjoyed an evergreen economy based on outdoor recreation, fly fishing, hunting, uh, as I mentioned, both quiet and motorized uh, forms of outdoor recreation. And these enormous swaths of industrialized landscape are not something people are looking for when they come for outdoor recreation. So my concern was that we were going to make a permanent change in the opportunity this community had to enjoy that sustainable form of economic development in exchange for a boom and bust. And she says the COVID-19 pandemic is showing people around the world that they can work from anywhere, even a town like Walden. Uh, One of the things that would help that is broadband. And we have broadband into uh, the school, but uh, it's not widely available. This would make a big difference for teleworking for Jackson County to to develop in that direction in addition to uh, maintaining an evergreen uh, outdoor recreation economy. And she says the electric company has a plan to do just that. Walden's mayor, Jim Dustin, says it's true that diversifying the town's economy is the way to go. The bane of many small towns is to be dependent on one industry or one large employer. And when that employer goes away, so do the jobs and so do the prospects. But he says Walden has been careful to plan for the bust. Expect it. Over the last few months, Jim has sat in the hot seat watching a wild shale oil boom come crashing down just in time for a global pandemic. They were bringing in 500 contract workers a day, and they were spending a lot of money in, in, in Walden. And our sales taxes doubled. And then overnight, the price of oil falls to negative. <laughs> I mean, people were paying people to store their oil. That's a negative price for oil. In a small town, you have, you can't uh, depend on things lasting forever. So we didn't budget. We, we got all that extra sales tax money, and we just stuck it in the bank. And we didn't budget for having extra revenue this year. And then, then the pandemic comes along, and all the restaurants had to shut down. And you know, it seems like there's one thing after another. But when I asked Jim what could help lift Walden out of these constant cycles, the cycles going back all the way to Teller City, he's not sure that that's the goal. Well, there's a division of opinion on that, and I'm on the side as I don't really care if anybody moves there or not. Why is that? Well, because it's so open, and I, I can walk out my door, drive three miles, and let my dog run all over the landscape. Or I can uh, target shoot. You can just pick up and go fishing in the in the evening. And so, th- your goal isn't necessarily to grow the size of the population. No, I uh, and I, I'm sure some people would disagree with that. The county used to have 3,500 people in it. Now it has 1,300 people in it. 
And that's fine with me. Oh, I know some people who'd agree with him on that. Top of the list, my own father. Jim figures eventually North Park will be discovered and developed with resorts and floods of people will come. But until then, he's going to enjoy having it all to himself. But here's the thing I feel like I'm learning after talking to all these folks about ghost towns. You can only let a town shrink so far before it caves. And like Teller, when it caves, it caves in a hurry. Remember Samuel Western, the economics historian? He gave me a succinct definition of what constitutes a ghost town. You need a post office and a school, usually. And when you lose those two entities, I think you probably could be called a ghost town. Which explains why Teller City made sure that they could get the mail, even if it meant trudging on snowshoes over a mountain pass. Every step was a fight for community survival. Walden's post office is okay, but its school? My elementary now sits boarded up. All the kids are now housed in the high school, and they only attend four days a week. So according to Western's ghost town rule, that makes Walden on the verge of extinction. That's scary news, but Western gave me some hope for my hometown, too. He has some advice for mayors like Jim Destin. He says if small towns want to save themselves, look at their community through the eyes of women. Of a single mom or of a woman who has a college degree and her husband or her partner gets transferred to an area. If we can make communities that are attractive to women, we will see a more profound difference in the tone and tenor of the town. Carbon-based fuels are, is a pretty much a male-dominated field. Just like silver mining was male-dominated. Those rugged individuals, mostly they were men. In her book, Hazel talks about how there were so few women in Teller that at the dance halls, the men practiced something called heifer branding. Some of the guys would wear a handkerchief tied on their arms and dance the ladies' part. Then for generations, Walden was stable because ranching is a whole family enterprise. That means lots of women and children in the community. And when my dad moved to Walden, he dragged along his whole family, including the horse. But in North Park's recent fracking boom, few men actually moved their families to town. On their two weeks off, they returned home to Texas or wherever they were from. They filled the town's motels or lived in the company's man camps. And any family that was interested in moving to North Park would have had trouble finding a house to live in, and they'd be worried about their kids' education. And while there's plenty of energy jobs, not much else. Adequate childcare is just um, having good schools, and again, having jobs that are out of the oil and gas sector that, that women can work in. Western says appealing to women and families could pull the American West out of its long reliance on boom and bust that's primarily meant jobs geared towards men. Instead, towns need to think about jobs women prefer. That's what the town of Sioux Falls did. Sioux Falls, South Dakota, is now a major medical center. There was an individual who donated millions, hundreds of millions 
to that system. And now you're going to see a much greater ratio of men to women in Sioux Falls because there are professional jobs for women in healthcare. What I'm realizing is that towns like Walden could take a little advice from that movie Field of Dreams. Build the town that families want and maybe, just maybe, they will come. I saw that when I toured Teller City, how the town never did quite enough to make it welcome to women and kids. And that's the secret to saving small towns. No cutting corners, no half-assed attempts at quality schooling or attracting jobs for women. A town can't lie to itself like Pinocchio. It's got to make an honest effort to build something people will move there for. And you know, come to think of it, that might have been what this very wealthy businessman was thinking when he came to Walden in the 90s and started buying up storefronts on Main Street. In the next episode of our Ghost Towning series, a stranger comes to town. I think it puts the control of what happens on Main Street in uh, Moore's hands. Just like theater. He was going to do this to the theater, and he was going to do this, and he was going to do this. Still sitting there. Next time on The Modern West. How do you think small towns in the West could shake off their boom and bust blues? Send us your bright ideas on social media at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Aaron Jones. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. Micah Schweitzer is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.